0: Chapter 11, we're going to be looking at verses 20 through 26. And again, if you've missed any portion of the message, it's available in the media room. It's available online. There's lots of ways that you can catch up. Mark chapter 11, beginning in verse 20, you might want to read along with me. Now, in the morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots And Peter, remembering, said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed is withered away. So Jesus answered and said to them, have faith in God. For assuredly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done. He will have whatever he says Therefore, I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them and you will have them. And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him that your father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your father in heaven forgive your trespasses. The chapter began with a celebration, the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem in fulfillment of prophecy in verses 1 through 11. It continues with the episode of the cleansing in the temple between verses 15 through 19. And woven into these episodes is this strange account of the cursing of the fig tree in verses 12 through 14, in verses 20 and 21, in verses 22 through 26. We're given the reason for the judgment in verses 12 through 14 and the results of the judgment in verses 20 and 21. And then there is this. Reflection on the judgment in verses 22 through 26 in our passage, Peter points out the dramatic and the immediate results of the curse. And once again, Jesus will use this episode as an opportunity to teach them about faith. And as he's teaching them about faith, he's also teaching us about faith. As he's teaching them about the conditions of prayer, he teaches us about the conditions of prayer. Look again at verse 20, the curse on the fig tree. Now in the morning, this is Tuesday morning, remember on Sunday is the triumphal entry. He leaves for Bethany and then returns on Monday. He goes back to Bethany and now it is Tuesday morning. Jesus cursed the fig tree on Monday in verses 12 through 14. Now, back on their way from Martha. Mary and Lazarus' house in Bethany, they wind their way as they're making their way towards Jerusalem. They see the dead tree withered from the roots. Why was Jesus disappointed in this tree? No fruit. It held out the promise of fruit, but it had no fruit. But Jesus is way less disappointed in the tree than he is. In Jerusalem and in the religious leaders, he is disappointed that the religious leaders and the people who are going through the religious motions and we run the same risk when we go through religious motions and we're unable or unwilling to bear spiritual fruit. And look what it says in verse 21. And Peter, remembering from yesterday, said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed is withered away. Peter expresses surprise that the fig tree is dead. Not mostly dead, really dead. But we've already learned something that the cursed fig tree isn't simply about leaves and simply about fruit, it's about Faith and fakery. It shouldn't surprise us that the tree that bears no fruit and the nation that bears no fruit and the church that bears no fruit and the individual that bears no fruit will wither up and eventually die and face justice and judgment. Haven't you ever wondered? Haven't you ever wondered why churches shrivel up and die? Haven't you ever wondered why people shrivel up and die? The Lord of the church comes looking for fruit and He doesn't find it. And one of the things that we need as we connect the past dot with the present dot is to ask the question, what causes fruitlessness? And it's what I call faith deficit disorder. Not that I'm trying to psychologize the text. What I'm trying to do is give you a memorable way of beginning to think about this. Because remember what we asked already. What causes fruitlessness? In part, it's faith. And that's going to help you understand as you look at verse 22. Because look what it says. Jesus answered and said to him, have faith in God. When you're reading the text, that's not what you expect him. Doesn't that seem odd to you? (laughs) Peter says... The tree's dead. And Jesus says, have faith in God. And you go, what? What? Could it be that Jesus is encouraging faith in God in the context of difficulty, of fruitlessness, of empty religion? Of being a make-believer, William MacDonald writes, quote, if disciples have faith in God, they can deal with the problems of fruitlessness. They can remove mountainous obstacles, unquote. So what does that mean when he says have faith in God? Faith is confidence and trust in God. Faith is not a force and your words aren't the container of the force. It's not magical powers and it's not wishful thinking. Faith is the act of believing, John one twelve, as many as received him, to them he gave the power to become the children of God. So faith is believing, trusting God and then the faith. Is the truth believed? We are invited to have faith in God and everything that God has done. We are invited to have confidence in God. And later we're going to be invited to have courage in Christ. But the unbeliever has no problem finding reasons not to believe. The unbeliever will, when Jesus says, have faith in God... The unbeliever says, why should I? Why should I believe in God? And why should I believe in the Bible? And why should I believe the promises of God? In Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, Jesus said, In this manner, therefore, pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In that simple sentence, Jesus incorporates a personal relationship with God, our Father. Faith, which art in heaven. Worship, hallowed be Thy name. Expectation, Thy kingdom come. Submission, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so when Jesus invites you, Have faith in God. The next question you should be asking is, well, what has God done? Well, God has provided a plan of salvation. Do you have faith in the universal sufficiency of the atonement? Human beings are in trouble. We're sinners by nature and by choice. We have to have faith that God's plan of salvation can be applied to our circumstances. We have to have faith in the fact that the Holy Spirit is available to help us in this work. And in just a few days, in just a few days, in just a few days, this Jesus and these disciples are going to march to an upper room, and He's going to sit them down, and He's going to say... Let not your heart be troubled. And the reason why he's going to say this is because they're in desperate trouble. And then he's going to say, You believe in God, believe also in me. When he extends the invitation to have faith in God, he's going to ultimately extend the invitation to have faith in Him. And faith in God is impossible, 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 apart from a relationship and fellowship with Him. There's a reason why the unbeliever is called an unbeliever. There's a reason why the person holds their hand and twiddles their thumbs and looks at the Bible and can't bring themselves to believe that what God says is really true. James, the brother of Jesus, writes in chapter one, verses five and six, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. If faith in God is a condition of prayer and if un- Belief is a hindrance to prayer. And all of a sudden we understand Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6. When it says, but without faith it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is. And that he's a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. And now you understand. Because remember the context is fruitlessness. And the answer to fruitlessness is in part faith. Faith in God faith in all that God has said that he will do the love that he'll give you and the forgiveness that he'll extend to you and the grace and the mercy that he will heap up inside of your heart if you will let him in Genesis chapter 12 verse 2 we read these simple words so Abram departed as the Lord had spoken Hebrews eleven eight, Abram got out Acts 7, 4, and removed into the land. What does this have to do with anything? When Abraham heard from God, when he heard from God, he responded to God and obeyed God. Obedience to the Lord is proof of relationship and fellowship and worship and submission. Obedience to the Lord is proof of faith. When somebody's kidnapped, they'll typically ask for proof of life. They want you to hold up a newspaper, but soon newspapers are going to all die, so everyone will have to hold up their iPad to prove that the date is the date and that that person is really alive. And proof of fruitfulness will be revealed in faithfulness. And obedience. Paul wrote to the Philippians in chapter 1, verse 12, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, But all the more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Then he adds, just in case someone makes the mistake of thinking that they have something to do with their own salvation in verse 13. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. In order to experience fruitfulness, you have to have faith in God. In order to have faith in God, you have to have friendship and fellowship with God. Or else you'll never have faith and you'll never have fruit. Bishop J.C. Ryle said, faith is to prayer what the feather is to the arrow. Without faith, it won't hit its mark. If you've ever shot an arrow and you see the little feathers at the end, the feather is to provide a a significant sense of direction for the arrow so that it can penetrate the atmosphere and hit its mark. And look what Jesus says in verse 23. For assuredly, I say to you, and you've been here long enough and you've listened long enough that whenever you see the word assuredly in the Bible, you understand that Jesus is bringing special attention to something that he's about to say. It doesn't mean that everything else isn't true. But what he's saying is, listen, so far, everything that I've said to you, Jesus is in effect saying is true. But I want to draw particular attention to what I'm about to say. Whoever says to this mountain, be removed and be cast. Into the sea and does not doubt in his heart but believes that those things he says will be done, he'll have whatever he says. It is fruitfulness that comes from faith, faith that comes from prayer. Prayer that's linked to expectation. Faith can produce wonderful works on earth, remove mountains. Faith can produce wonderful works in heaven. The kingdom is expanded. What things soever you desire when you pray, believe that you receive them and you shall have them. Earlier in Matthew chapter 7 verse 7, Jesus said, ask and it will be given to you we know that the bible says that the fervent effectual prayers of the righteous person avails much and so by such prayer we take hold of the strength of omnipotence. We move the arm that moves the universe. And so when Jesus says, for assuredly, I say to you, whoever says this mountain, be removed. And I want to take you back in time and in space. Remember, they're walking from Bethany. They find themselves on the Mount of Olives. There is the cursed fig tree, dead, dead, D-A-D, dead. And there's a ravine. It's a gigantic ravine. And across the ravine is Mount Moriah. And they are on the Mount of Olives. Now, the Bible, there's lots of mountains that are mentioned in the Bible. Mount Ararat, where the Ark of Noah landed in Turkey. Remember, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord in Genesis 8. There's Mount Carmel, where Elijah challenges the priests of Baal to a duel. To the death. There's Mount Ebal. Where the curses of Israel, if the people refuse to obey, are given. They're located in Samaria, there's Mount Gerazim, where the blessings of Israel for obedience were pronounced. Where the Samaritans later built a temple. Where Jesus, in John chapter 4, as he's sitting with the Samaritan lady, is beginning to tell her the truth about God. And what kind of a God is really God. And this lady says... "I, I I perceive that you're a prophet. Let me ask you a theological question. We Samaritans worship on Mount Gerizim, and you Jews worship on on Mount Ararat. And remember Jesus' response Salvation is of the Jews. You worship what you don't understand. And then Jesus says something very interesting. He says, there's going to come a time where people won't be able to worship on this mountain or that mountain because God is looking for people to worship him in spirit and in truth. Jesus is standing on the mount across the mount is mount moriah where abraham almost or excuse yes abraham almost sacrificed isaac where solomon has built the temple and now centuries later herod has built the temple in the history of the church in the history of humanity no one no one no one has ever said to a pile of dirt and stone be thou removed and be cast into the sea it's never happened ever so is this a physical mountain? Is this a spiritual mountain? Is this an emotional mountain? The disciples don't need to get rid of the Mount of Olives and it certainly don't need to get rid of Mount Moriah. So what's the mountain? What's the real mountain in this passage? Is the mountain problems associated with living in this world? Maybe. But what if I told you that the mountain in this context is fruitlessness and faithlessness... Because this is exactly what Jesus seems to be wanting people to get a hold of. What are the real obstacles of faith? What are the real obstacles of fruitlessness? What is the real obstacles to prayer? You might think that your mountain is unemployment. You might think that it's a marriage partner. You might think that it's the lack of a marriage partner. You might think it's financial difficulties but you know what where we're typically not willing to look inside of our hearts inside of our circumstances because if fruitlessness is linked to faithlessness and faithlessness is linked to unbelief then guess what a lack of faith is basically Compromised in unbelief praying without faith is like trying to cut with a blunt knife. Have you ever tried to cut with a blunt knife? You just saw and saw and saw away. You expend a lot of energy, but there's not a whole lot of cutting that takes place. And so all of a sudden we begin to understand something. That there is a sense. In which unbelief is a very, very big problem. And disobedience is a very, very big problem. Spurgeon said, faith and obedience are bound up in the same bundle. He that obeys God trusts God. And he that trusts God obeys God. He that is without faith is without works. And he that is without works is without faith. And so the invitation is still extended. Have faith in God. You see, the surprise isn't that the fig tree is dead. The surprise is the invincibility of faith coupled with prayer. Jesus knows that in a few short days the disciples are going to reel from the events that are about to transpire. One within their own group is going to betray Jesus. The arrest and the trial of Jesus and the death of Jesus is going to pick them up and turn them upside down. Because they're going to wonder, wait, 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 we thought Jesus was the Messiah. Wait, wait, we thought that the Bible was true. Wait, wait, we thought, look, we saw the miracles. We saw the demon-possessed people. We saw Lazarus come back to life. I'm not understanding. How am I supposed to understand what's happening right in front of me? Their fear and their doubt and their helplessness is going to be like a pile of dirt inside of their soul. And it's going to seem gigantic and enormous and insurmountable mountable And so what's going to make the darkness go away and what's going to make the emptiness go away and what is going to make the fear and the helplessness go away They're going to have to have faith in Jesus and faith that his death is something meaningful and that his resurrection is meaningful belief that he is alive And how heavy is grief and how heavy is depression and how heavy is doubt and how heavy is sin? Because what God is inviting you to do is to trust him and believe him that he can give you what you really, really need. And so if the first expectation in prayer is the belief that there is a God and that He's really there and that He can respond to what you're saying. The second condition is found in verse 24. Look what it says. Therefore, I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them and you will have them. Again, I'm begging you. I'm begging you to consider the context. The context is fruitlessness. And the need for faith, the disciples do not understand the motive for Jesus' words. Do the disciples at this point truly understand the enormous trial that they're about to face? The severe testing that they're about to experience? Because in just a few short chapters and in a few short days, Mark's gospel is going to read, "...and they forsook him and they fled." they're going to entertain the notion that god doesn't really care for them and that forgiveness can't be be possible it can't even be possible Faith and prayer are so intimately associated with each other that you can't have one without the other. So faith in God must, of necessity, produce this expectation from God. And Jesus is preparing them like he's going to prepare you, and as he continues to prepare you, that in order to face life's challenges and difficulties and the emptiness and the darkness and the grief and the depression and the doubt, you're going to have to have the tools. In order to trust Him. We live in a world where we think that seeing is believing. Common sense says if you can taste it. If you can touch it. If you can see it. If you can feel it. But Jesus is inviting us to embrace the notion that it isn't seeing that's believing. But rather it is believing that results in seeing. Well, I can't believe that there's a God who really cares. I can't believe that the Bible is really true. I can't believe that the gospel is really true. I can't believe that He really rose from the dead. Then guess what? You're in big trouble. Because your unbelief is also an admission of fruitlessness and faithlessness. No wonder in Matthew seven seven Jesus says, Ask, and it shall be given to you. Now Jesus urges not simply asking in faith, but also a willingness to receive according to faith. Believe that you receive them. That's the expectation. When a phone solicitor calls your house, what should they expect? I know what you're thinking he should be he should expect to be hung up on. You mean you don't like it when people call you right in the middle of dinner and want to sell you some piece of junk? What I'll typically do is go, can I have your phone number? Well, why do you want my phone number? So I can call you when it's inconvenient. But sometimes that's how we are with God. We ask. But we don't really believe. But Jesus has already demonstrated if you ask, if you ask. And what is he suggesting that you should be asking for? Remember, it's fruitlessness in the context of a need to be faithful and the need to have this expectation that God will really hear and really respond. In John 16, 23, whatever you ask in the father in my name, he will give it to you. This is asking and asking in faith, but it's also identifying with the Lord Jesus. The implication being that when you ask in the name of Jesus, you're not just saying Jesus. Jesus, But you're implying all that that name means the character of Christ, the will of Christ, the expectations of God. In other words, you're asking in a way that is consistent with the character of God and you're asking in a way that that's consistent with the will of God. When I've said this in the past, I've used the illustration of my own mother, uh, where I say, hey, look, if you're ever in Southern California and you're ever in Hesperia and you're ever on this particular street where my mother lives and you go to the house and you knock on the door and you say, I'm here and I'm a friend of Gino. My mother looks at you. And says. How do you know, Gino? I go to his church. And what did he say? He said, if I was ever in Hesperia, you would give me a glass of water, you'd give me a glass of iced tea, you'd give me a hot cup of coffee. Oh. Oh, okay. Come in. Now, would my mother also expect that you would conduct yourself in a way that's consistent with me? Would she expect you to tie her up, rob her, and take her furniture? Would she expect you... To act in a way that is wicked or weird. You see, this is problematic. Ruth Graham Bell said, God has not always answered my prayers. If he had, I would have married the wrong man several times. (laughs) Aren't you glad that God hasn't answered all of your prayers? Oh God, I can't live without him. Oh, God, I can't live without her. I remember I fell in love with this girl when I was in high school. She was so beautiful. She, would, and she just seemed like the right. Oh, those beautiful brown eyes and that long brown hair. Oh, my hands are sweating and my my palms are just uh, my heart is breaking. Every time I come near, I go, oh, God, I've got I've got to marry Patty. She's the one Lord. She's the one te- at our 10 year reunion. Patty had gained 150 more pounds. I went, You were right. You know what? There's a reason why God sometimes says no. There's a reason why God says wait. You know, again, it seems awful that I should even have to say this. Does God have an obligation to answer our prayers for sinful things? Does God have an obligation to answer our prayers for selfish things? Does God have an obligation to to answer our prayers for foolish things? If you're a mother, if you're a father, has your child ever said, Mom, I want this? And you gave it to him. Some of you said, no. If it's sinful, stupid or foolish, they don't get it. I wish I could say the same thing. Sometimes my children will ask for things and I'll give it to them. And it's not always a good idea. And sometimes God, for reasons that I don't always understand, When we beg him and when we plead with him and when we badger him and when we push and when we shove and when we push and we shove and we insist on having something that God clearly doesn't want us to have. And then we push and we shove and we complain and we whine and we gripe and we finally get it and our life is a disaster as a result. And we say, God, why did you let me have that? You fasted and prayed and begged me for 40 days and 40 nights? And I figured, you know what? There's no way that this person's going to learn the lesson until I give them exactly what they think that they want and they find out it's not good for them. In his sermon, The Disciples' Prayer, Haddon Robinson recalls When our children were small, we played a game. I'd take some coins in my fist. They'd sit on my lap and work my fingers open. According to the international rules of finger opening, once the finger is open, it can't be closed again. They would work at it until they got the pennies out of my hand. They would jump up and down and they would run away, filled with glee and delight, just kids, just a game. And sometimes when we come to God... We come for the pennies in his hand. Lord, I need a passing grade. Help me study. Lord, I need a job. Lord, my mother is ill. We reach for the pennies. When God grants the request, we push the hand away. More important than the pennies in God's hand is the hand of God himself. That's what prayer is about. And sometimes in order to grow up, you have to learn what it means to reach out and hold his hand and allow him to lead you and feel the gentle but firm grip as he's leading you in the direction that you know you must go. Prayer implies a certain expectation. There is faith and there is expectation. The disciples are going to face a great trial. There's going to come a a time in the not too distant future, even in their life, where their prayer will seem empty and hollow and weightless. Jesus will invite them in the garden of Gethsemane to come and pray with me. He'll say, I need you to watch and pray for a while but they will close their eyes and they will shut their mouth. Confidence and courage combines when you believe that what God says is true and that He will make good on His expectations and that you can trust that you can ask Him And believe that he's going to give it to you. One poet said, never a trial that he's not there. Never a burden that he doesn't bear. Never a sorrow that he doth not share. Moment by moment, I'm under his care. Never a heartache and never a groan. Never a teardrop and never a moan. Never a danger. But there on the throne, moment by moment, he thinks of his own That is an immovable anchor in the storm of life. Lord, I know you're there. I know your forgiveness is there. I know your grace is there. I know your mercy is there. I know that salvation is there. I know that you're gracious and kind and good. And so think about this. The cure for fruitlessness becomes faith. Coupled with expectation. But look, when you pray, the third condition, forgiveness through God. Look what it says for yourself. And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive them. That your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. Another condition of prayer, forgiving spirit. Faith in God, expectation from God, forgiving spirit. Once again, the condition of a forgiving spirit is impossible. Impossible. Apart from relationship and fellowship with God. John Stott said the symbol of the religion of Jesus is the cross and not the scales. Someone said... Forgiveness does not mean the cancellation of all consequences of wrongdoing. It means the refusal on God's part to let our guilty past affect his relationship to us. And so look what it says in verse 26. But if you do not forgive, neither will your father in heaven forgive your trespasses. Someone might protest. Well, wait a minute. Time out. Time. Time out. Doesn't this make forgiveness a condition for salvation and pardon? No, you're saved by grace through faith alone in Christ alone. William MacDonald writes, quote, this does not refer to the judicial forgiveness of sins at the time of conversion. That is strictly a matter of grace through faith, but this refers to God's. Parental dealings with his children, an unforgiving spirit in a believer breaks fellowship with God and hinders the flow of blessing. And unfortunately, I'm going to even have to explain that because some of you don't know the difference between fellowship and relationship. Relationship is permanent. My children can't cease to be my children. They'll always be my children. I will always love them. I will always provide for them. I will always secure what's in their best interest. Relationship comes by virtue of the fact that you're linked inseparably with someone. Fellowship is when you experience that relationship on some sort of basis. Your father may be dead. Your mother might be alive. You don't cease to be their son, even though your father has died and your mother is alive and she lives a long ways away. But the moment that you pick up the phone, the moment that you call her, the moment that you say, Mom, how are you? I love you. I miss you. I'm thinking about you. You're having fellowship with her. We don't experience God's pardon apart from repentance. We might even argue that repentance becomes the outward sign and the proof of pardon. The Lord does not extend forgiveness simply on the basis of personal repentance, but pardon on the basis of what Jesus has done on the cross. But the expectation is that fruitfulness that comes from a life of faith and expectation means that you have prayed to God and you've asked for what's most important that your sin is forgiven that heaven is a real place and that you're going to go there But Jesus isn't simply interested in reconciling you to God. If that was the only thing that he was interested in, that would be important enough. But Jesus is also interested in the fact that we be reconciled to one another. And so he says, if you've experienced forgiveness, then you should be able to extend it to others. General Oglethorpe said, I never forgive. John Wesley said, then, sir, I hope you never sin." Paul wrote in Colossians three thirteen, bear with each other. Forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgives you. My granny used to say, every person should have a special cemetery lot in which to bury the faults of friends and loved ones. I have that place in my imagination. I picture myself at the cemetery where my grandma's buried. And I walk down the row, and I find her headstone, and I find the plot next to her, and I dig the dirt, and I make the hole, and then whatever grievance, whatever anger, whatever bitterness, whatever unforgiveness is in my heart, I put it in that hole. because you are guaranteed fruitlessness if you live a life of bitterness and unforgiveness. Charles Spurgeon used to preach, we are certain that there is forgiveness because there is a gospel and the very essence of the gospel lies in the proclamation of the pardon of sin. Because you've experienced forgiveness. It's possible to extend it. So, what become the conditions of prayer? Faith in God, belief in answered prayer, a profound sense of expectation, a forgiving spirit. And what does that mean? What does a forgiving spirit mean? God pardons we repent we forgive others Jesus came to reconcile us to God Jesus provides an opportunity where broken friendships can experience wholeness and wellness and what are the hindrances of prayer. Unbelief and everything that unbelief includes, unforgiveness and everything that unforgiveness includes. You know what? We could add unconfessed sin to that from Psalm sixty-six, eighteen. We could we could add insincerity in Matthew six, five, where Matthew says, "When you come, come." Really believing this and sincerely, we have to negotiate with our carnal motives and our pride and our refusal to submit to biblical teaching. Peter even suggests that marital problems might hinder our prayers. Leonard Ravenhill said. The self-sufficient do not pray. The self-satisfied will not pray. The self-righteous cannot pray pray and so it makes sense to me that you wouldn't pray it makes sense to me that you will not pray it makes sense to me that you cannot pray if you're fruitless and faithless and you have a heart filled with unforgiveness A.W. Tozer said to pray effectively, we must want what God wants and that only to pray in the will of God. And now we understand not only the secret of fruitfulness, but the secret of prayer. It's to want what God wants in the way that he wants it. And what does he want for you? Freedom. Joy. Forgiveness. Instead of darkness, light, instead of emptiness, fullness, instead of detachment and hopelessness, attachment and hope. Samuel Chadwick said, the one concern of the devil is to keep the saints from praying. He fears nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless work, prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil. He mocks at our wisdom. But He trembles when we pray. Do you want to submit to God? Do you want to resist the devil? Do you want fruitfulness instead of fruitlessness? Pray. Pray and believe Him. Pray and receive Him. Pray that your soul and your future depend on it because guess what? It does. If what I'm saying is true, to pray effectively means to want what God wants, then what does He want? He wants us to confess our sin. He wants us to repent from our sin. He wants us to love Him and trust Him and submit to Him and obey Him. But some of us want to just pry pennies from our Father's hand. Your Father's a king. Your Father's the Lord of the universe. Don't disrespect Him. If you're going to ask for something from your father, go big. Ask big. Go for the gusto. Say, Lord, I want... All the grace that you're willing to give me I want all the mercy you're willing to give me I want all the love that you're willing to lavish on me I want all of the forgiveness and the hope and the cleansing I want all of the guidance that you're willing to reveal to me I want all of the strength that is going to be necessary for me to obey you but some of you will wait will ask for way less. Don't do it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that, Lord, we would be willing (laughs) to believe you that the solution to fruitlessness is faithfulness. And that the solution to faith is the eager expectation that what you say is true and that can be relied on. And so, Lord, I pray for the person who. Whose heart is filled with anger and bitterness, with fear and unforgiveness. Lord, I pray that that dark place would become light. And that empty place would become full. And that swollen, guilt ridden place would. Would be filled with joy and peace. Lord, we prayed for fruitfulness, but fruitfulness without faithfulness and faithfulness without forgiveness doesn't even seem possible. And so, Lord, again, I pray that you will minister to that man, that woman. Lord, I pray that they will examine their heart. Lord, I pray that unbelief and unforgiveness would no longer be a hindrance to prayer, that unconfessed sin and insincerity would no longer be a hindrance to prayer, but that, Lord, we could, we could believe that we're asking things that are according to your character and according to your will and according to the, the character of Jesus and the will of Jesus. Lord, sometimes we're foolish, wicked, and selfish. Lord, we pray that you would forgive us and that you would fill us with the things that matter most. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.